please turn in your copy of God's message to his people to Lamentations chapter 3 verses 22 through 24. If you would like to follow along using one of our pew Bibles, you can find this passage on page 688. Our pew Bibles are the English Standard Version, and that's the translation from which I'll be reading throughout this sermon. I read, beginning in verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Let us pray. Father, I pray that today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would bless us with a better understanding of what you have said. I pray that we would exult in your steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness. I pray that you would be our portion and that we will hope in you. It's in the marvelous name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. The main point of the passage that we're going to study today is this. Put your hope in the Lord. It's a message that Jeremiah and the people of his day needed to hear. It's a message that we need to hear today. This passage contains very encouraging words from the pages of Scripture. If you were unfamiliar with this passage, it would be easy to think that these words had been spoken in a time of great blessing, a time of great prosperity when things were going really well. Perhaps Jeremiah's uh, investments were having some pretty handsome yields. And maybe even the leader that he preferred was in power and possibly would be for many years. But if you read the entire book of Lamentations, you can see that nothing could be further from the truth. During most of the content of this book, the writer of Lamentations, Jeremiah, is doing exactly what the book is titled. He is lamenting. He is lamenting what is likely the greatest tragedy he has ever faced in his life. The destruction of the holy city of Jerusalem, which is also referred to as Zion in the scriptures. The small amount of freedom and autonomy that the southern kingdom of Israel had left was now gone. And the vast majority of her people have been removed from the land that God promised to them and taken into captivity by the nation of Babylon. The southern kingdom of Israel was also called Judah, and in their sinful pride, many of them never thought this day would come. But now it has. The book of Lamentations opens with these words. You can follow along with me. Chapter 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. 
The reason for this calamity is given in verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. Look also at verse 18 of the same chapter. This is Jeremiah speaking collectively for the whole nation of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my sufferings. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. There were many sins for which the people of Judah were guilty. Most of them centered around the sin of idolatry. Rejecting the one true God and worshiping false gods of the nations that surrounded them. Israel was warned by Moses and Joshua when they came into the promised land that if they engaged in the worship of the false gods of the surrounding nations that the Lord would remove Israel from the land and now they are seeing firsthand the negative aspect of the faithfulness of the Lord. The worship of these false gods involved immoral practices. Among the worst of these was the practice of a person sacrificing their own child to a false god named Molech. Why would they do such a thing? The false teachings surrounding this practice claimed that anyone making such an offering to Molech would be blessed greatly by him with material wealth, prosperity, security. Today, we don't see a lot of people worshiping Molech but we do see a lot of people worshiping themselves. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're told that in the last days, peoples will be lovers of themselves. The names of the idols of Jeremiah's day may have changed, but the appalling practices have not. It is only by the grace of God and the faithfulness of His will that we are allowed to remain in this land today. Look at how he dealt with his chosen nation for these sins in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 of Lamentations. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. Jeremiah continues with his lament in verse 11 of chapter 2. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. And in verse 13, What can I say for you? To what compare to you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? For all of chapters 1 and 2 and the first part of chapter 3 of Lamentations, this is what Jeremiah dwells on. Frankly, it's difficult to read. To imagine the horrific events that this nation and this writer have had to live through. How does he get from this mindset to the words that I read at the opening of this sermon? Let's read starting in verse 16 of chapter 3. At this point, 
Jeremiah has shifted his focus from the sufferings of the nation as a whole to his own personal suffering during and after this tragedy. I read, starting in verse 16, He, speaking of God, has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. And here is the phrase in verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. A.W. Tozer has rightly said, the most important thing about a person is what comes into their mind when they think about God. The next time you are tempted to give in to despair, don't remind yourself about how likely it is for your circumstances to change. Don't remind yourself about your own ability. Remind yourself of what you know to be true about God from His Word. In order to do that, you will need to read His Word. And I would advise you, don't stop there. Immerse yourself in it. Study it. Pray through it. Listen to qualified men. Preach on it. Make sure that it is in the music that you listen to. I was listening to Todd Friel speak the other day and he raised a very good point. He was speaking about the ocean of media that is available to us specifically in terms of world events. While speaking on this, he raised the point that one of the reasons that we as a people are so stressed out by all the information that is available to us is because we are not made to be omniscient. We are finite. We are limited. Of course we will be overwhelmed if we fall into the trap of trying to know everything and figuring out how it should all work out. Now should we be informed? Of course. We should be informed. But don't spend the majority of your time dwelling on these things. Hear the highlights of the day and then turn it off and then look to the one who is omniscient, who can handle all these things, who is maker and sustainer of all of them. And don't go to a quiet room and wait for him to give you some secret message. Look to him in his word. That's what we see Jeremiah doing in this passage. In the worst of circumstances, in the absolute pit of despair, he stops. He remembers. He calls to mind what he knows to be true about God, and therefore, he has hope. This is what he remembers. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Verses 22 and 23 can be grouped together in the sense that they are both speaking of what Jeremiah knows to be true about God. And verse 24 speaks about Jeremiah's response to that truth. You will see this pattern repeated throughout all of Scripture. An individual recalls something that he knows to be true about God and then responds to that truth. To better understand the truth that Jeremiah is responding to, we have to understand the terms he is using. First of all, 
Jeremiah intentionally uses the title that he does for God in this passage. Lord. All four letters of Lord are capitalized, which represents God's covenant name, Yahweh. This is the name that he uses for himself when he makes a covenant. And this is very appropriate for this passage as Jeremiah speaks of his steadfast love. That is, his covenant love, his loyal love that he chooses to show to those with whom he has made covenant. I'm going to jump ahead just a bit in our text and talk about the term faithfulness at the end of verse 23. In other translations, this term is often rendered as truth or truthfulness. Some other helpful synonyms are honesty, steadfastness, trustworthiness, and firmness. The point is, Yahweh can be depended on. You can take what he says to the bank. Now, I went ahead and addressed faithfulness in order to point out that the terms faithfulness and steadfast love are two words that you will see used together frequently throughout the Old Testament. You will see this most often in the Psalms. Repetition is used as a tool for emphasis throughout the Bible. A few examples are these. Psalm 89.1 I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 117, praise the Lord all nations, extol him all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. When you compare these two words, steadfast love and faithfulness, you will find a lot of overlap in their ranges of meaning, but you will also find some significant differences. There are some situations in Scripture where these two words are used in contrast to one another, but often they are used in a complementary fashion. And that is the case in our passage that we're studying. I think this is a helpful way to understand the author's meaning. Yahweh will be faithful to show steadfast love. To help further define that term steadfast love, I give you two words that may be a little more familiar. One of them we see used here intentionally. That word is mercy. The second word is grace. Mercy is when we do not receive a penalty or a punishment that we deserve, like eternity in hell for our sin. Grace is when we receive something good that we don't deserve, like eternity in heaven, even though we have sinned. Yahweh will be faithful. That is, he will never fail in showing steadfast love to those he chooses. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This is on page 8 of the Pew Bible. read in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Yahweh repeated the essence of this covenant to Abram's son Isaac and to Isaac's son Jacob, whose name he would later change to Israel. This is known as the Abrahamic covenant, since it was to Abraham that this covenant was first made. 
contained within this covenant were three major components. Blessing of a land that would belong to his heritage. Great blessing to multiply his descendants. And finally, that in him all the families or nations of the earth will be blessed. Now as we consider this list, it would be understandable to think maybe it doesn't really look like Yahweh is being very faithful to this covenant that he made with Abraham and his descendants. As we consider what is happening during that time, during the time Jeremiah is writing Lamentations, we see that the land is being taken away from the remaining southern kingdom. We see that many of Israel's descendants have been slaughtered and most who remain have been taken captive by another nation. And it appears that the only blessing that Israel will provide to the nations will come in the form of slave labor. Also, in the midst of this chaos, the temple has been destroyed. The place where Yahweh had previously manifested his presence. The place where he had commanded his people to worship him. He destroyed this temple because his people had so polluted and corrupted the worship of God at his temple that he took away the opportunity for them to continue to do so. It is a holy and precious privilege to worship Almighty God. And I praise the Lord that we are part of a church with elders and members who strive to do so. So even though we can see that much has been lost during this invasion of Jerusalem and the surrounding land, I think if we take a closer look, we will see that Jeremiah is justified in praising the faithfulness of Yahweh even in the midst of this storm. We saw how God promised to multiply the descendants of Abraham. And though, even though many have lost their lives in the siege that lasted for almost two years prior to the invasion of Jerusalem, many have been preserved alive and will be allowed to continue their heritage. We can also look to the fact that God's prophet Jeremiah is still alive to write this book. Also, in a previous invasion of Jerusalem, the prophet Ezekiel was taken captive to Babylon where he will write his book of prophecy. The young man Daniel as well was taken captive and his life will be preserved and ultimately he will be elevated to a seat of power in a Gentile nation like Mordecai and like Joseph before them. Great is the faithfulness of Yahweh. In addition to the promise to multiply Abraham's descendants, God promised to give his descendants the land that they are currently be. Excuse me. In addition to the promise to multiply Abraham's descendants, God's promise to give his descendants this land that they are currently being removed from will be retained. Jeremiah would have certainly remembered the revelation that God had given him that the Israelites who were taken captive and their descendants will return to this land in 70 years. You can find that prophecy in Jeremiah 29.10. I'm certain that Jeremiah would have well remembered Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 5, chapter 45, verses 1 through 13, that Yahweh would raise up a king named Cyrus who will subdue nations and will rebuild the city of Jerusalem and set the exiles free. Even though when Isaiah received that prophecy, he would have had no idea who Cyrus was because he had not been born yet. Nor would he have had any idea that the nation that he would rule, Persia, would rise to be the dominant power in the known world at that time. 
Likewise, at the time Jeremiah wrote this book, he would not have known that this Cyrus would lead the nation of Persia that would rise up in 70 years and conquer Babylon and allow the Jews to return to their land and even provide funds to help them rebuild their city and their temple. But that's exactly what happened. Exactly the way God said it would. Amazing, yes. Did the descendants of Israel deserve this? No. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. In the book of Jeremiah, that of course Jeremiah also wrote, Yahweh revealed another covenant to him, primarily directed to Israel, but like the Abrahamic covenant, it would affect Gentiles as well. Please turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. This is page 660 in the Pew Bible. I read starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The covenant that the children of Israel broke was the Mosaic Covenant, generally known as the Ten Commandments. I want to focus on the verse at the end of this passage, particularly the last sentence in which Yahweh tells Jeremiah that he will forgive the iniquity of Israel's descendants and remember their sin no more. The reason this calamity came upon the southern kingdom of Israel was their sin. The late R.C. Sproul coined a great quote about sin. He said, Sin is cosmic treason. The system of government on which this universe runs is not a democracy.